Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on 90.1 FM KSRQ. Yes, Pioneer 90.1 is available beyond the FM dial at RadioNorthland.org. That's where you can listen to us live and in the moment. Or if you missed out, sometimes, you know, Friday or Sunday commitments, things happen, life happens. You can check us out. Check out a replay at RadioNorthland.org. We have uh, over seven seasons of Wrestling Memories Then and Now archives for you to go through. And you can hear this episode, too, if you just happen to miss it live. We're also available on TuneIn Live, so you can check that out too on that fine little app. I'm Glenn Broggett along with the grizzled vet Mr. Mike McCurdy. Uh, Mike is uh, down there and deep in the heart of, the te- of Texas here, and summertime has just officially gotten underway, and as we are uh, chatting today, uh, Mike has is, is, is taken one for pro wrestling. Mike is down in the mobile studio, uh, which doesn't have state-of-the-art uh, air conditioning to keep him as cool as a cucumber. No, 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 brother. He is down there taking it for the team, getting all warmed up and heated up. So we, we I, every single precious second is precious to you down there today. And, Mike, it is good to have you in. I, I, I know it's a, a big, big thing to be out there in that heat, man. Once it gets like near the triple digits in the 90s to the triple digits, man, you don't want to be anywhere but cool. Oh, most definitely, man. But you know what? Like you said, taking one for the team, always doing something for wrestling memory. So I'll survive the mobile studio. It's a nice little... You know, real field temperature. It says it's 98 degrees, but it feels like it's 111. So it, it's a little bit warm today, you might say. But you know what? That's cool. We're here. We're going to discuss, you know, some great wrestling memories. And I think our listeners are going to enjoy this week's guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, a trip down a different path here, you know, this week. I mean, we, of course, we, we have we have the very much the open door here at Wrestling Memories then and now, and we love to talk with uh, not only some of the legends of yesterday, the authors, the historians, and the like, but we love to talk to wrestlers out there doing their thing today to tell their wrestling memories, to tell their story, and you have found a great guest today. A very good guest. You gave me some of the notes uh, to, to check out. And, uh, yeah, just a few things about this man has uh, gotten me curious. It's piqued my curiosity. And I'm going to let you introduce uh, our, our guest today because you definitely went out and did some proper scouting, my friend. Yeah, it wasn't really hard to find this guest too much. But, Glenn, curiosity is definitely a good word to describe, uh, you know, the man we're going to talk to today. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him for many years. I've been I've been watching him since the beginning of his career, back when he first started up in the Oregon area. But he's been in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, California, Canada, South America, Florida. Man's been all over. So I'm very proud today to have the indie spotlight be on not just a friend of mine, but a talented wrestler, a great mind for the business. The guys that he's had a chance to work with and learn from, I think our listeners are going to be really impressed with his resume. Our guest this week is none other than a man that some may call the devil himself. Some may call him the human horror show. I call him Derek Drexel. Derek, welcome to Wrestling Memories. And greetings and salutations, gentlemen. So you guys want to talk to Derek or you want to talk to Drexel today? Because there's a, uh, a big difference between both guys. So uh, you want to well, you know, you know, you know what? Or do you want, uh, you want uh, Drexel to go a little bit nutty on your uh, radio show? You know, let's talk to Derek a little first, kind of get a little feel for how he got involved in the business, and then we'll bring Drexel up a little bit later, because I always enjoy talking to Drexel. Cool. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Drexel's what happens when you're a radio DJ and you decide to get into a, uh, a world full of giants and, uh, and have no problem taking a, uh, a pretty good ass whooping. So, uh, you know, Drexel's a, a byproduct of uh, the last 
13, 14 years of being in this business. 14 years, man. Like I said, I think I've been there since the beginning. Like you said, you started off, you were a when I met you, you were a radio show host in uh, Portland, Oregon for the Buckhead Show. Morning, morning yep. show, by the way, which that alone is a little bit on the crazy side. But yeah, I was, what uh, was, I was it? a morning yeah. DJ. I was a morning DJ that had, uh, I'd been working for probably 12, 13 years at that point in radio and had lived all over the, uh, all over the country. And it just happened. I got a job. Uh, Buckhead was a, uh, a friend of mine who was actually an intern years before for me. And he had gotten uh, hosting duties for a morning show up in Portland, hit me up and I came out to be a co-host producer on the show. And I was uh, pretty shocked when I got out here and, Portland wrestling was still alive and was on TV. And so that's how I ended up uh, getting my, my foot in the door for, uh, for this crazy business. Now, you know, there we'll start that as we'll get that as our starting point. But, you know, when you're watching it, you moved, you said you moved up to the area. Portland wrestling was still going at that time. Frank Culbertson was, uh, was running it. But what about professional wrestling piqued your interest? What did you see that, you know, you decided, you know, you wanted to have a chance. You wanted to try and do this. Yeah, what were some of the influences you had, you know, watching wrestling and kind of getting into the scene? I really can't remember a time in my life where I didn't watch wrestling. I've watched since I was a little kid, and most people talk about like they sat down and they watched with their uh, their their parents or their grandparents. I I remember my grandpa being around and, and kind of watching it and laughing about it. My grandma hated it. Uh, my dad was never a fan, but I probably from age five or six is when I first. Uh, discovered wrestling and started watching it. I was a, I was a huge comic book fan and superhero fan. So it was the, the larger than life characters and stuff. And I think my first show I went to was 84, or 85. It was uh, a WWF show at the uh, Michigan state fair. And the, uh, the main event was Hogan defending the uh, world title against uh, intercontinental champion, Greg Valentine. And that was the main event on the show. And I was probably maybe, I don't know, nine, 10 years old at the time. And that was my first live show I ever went to. So I've, uh, I've been obsessed with wrestling my entire life. And I, I had thought about possibly trying to get into wrestling, but back in the, uh, the eighties and nineties, trying to get a foot in the door, uh, was, was pretty rough. And my family was kind of against it. And that's how I ended up being a radio DJ. I knew I wanted to perform in some way. And I was like, well, Chances of me ever working for uh, being a pro wrestler are probably slim and none. So I'll, I'll I'll take the backup career and go be a radio DJ. So you know, as a radio DJ, you said you were you know kind of all over the country. Well, you know, what other areas besides you know Oregon you know were you in during your time as a radio DJ? Uh, I was throughout Michigan, Ohio, down in Tampa at one point. Um, I usually stayed a good. Yeah, two, three years for most of the shows, and then I would jump on to the next show. But the biggest markets I was in was uh, WRAF in Detroit as part of the Drew and Mike show. That's where I got my start. And then I was down in Tampa at uh, was it FLZ for the uh, MJ and uh, BJ show, which was a, uh, a huge award-winning show down, based out of there. Now, during all this time, are you still following, you know, not just like WWF and what you see on TV, but are you having a chance to check out some of the local uh, wrestling around that in, in the areas? Um, I, not really. I mean, uh, in Detroit, yes, growing up, I, I remember going to uh, some of the indies in, in high school. I remember seeing Rob Van Dam and, and Sabu and Al Snow all before any of them were uh, 
whatsoever. I mean, Sabu probably had the biggest name out of them, just being uh, Sheik's uh, nephew. And the Sheik, had, the original Sheik, had such a reputation up in the Detroit area where I grew up. Everyone knew about the Sheik. And so uh, I went to a few indie shows there. When I was down in Florida, I remember going, that's when I saw my first ECW show. And I remember going to a bunch of ECW shows when they come down to Florida because I had never seen any of that up in Detroit at that point because they weren't syndicated there. Um, and then it wasn't really, I didn't really start following. I mean, I would, I'd read the, uh, the magazines and I would read about some of the indies here and there and then when the internet sprouted up, but I didn't really start going to indie shows until I moved out to Portland and uh, Portland Wrestling was still going. I started getting my, my feet wet in the business. Now let's skip forward a little bit. We'll go into, uh, you know, you moved up to Portland, you started working with the Buckhead Show, and this is where... I believe you got involved with uh, Culbertson and Portland wrestling, but it was kind of as like a, as part of the radio show, correct? Um, yeah, actually it was uh, me being, uh, seeing it on TV and uh, the station that Portland wrestling was on also had a, uh, our competition. Um, I forget what the name of the show was, but our direct competition on morning shows had their own little TV show and it ran on the same station as Portland wrestling. So, being a top 40 station, they really wanted nothing to do with Portland or with pro wrestling. So I pitched it of, Hey, if we get our presence on Portland wrestling, it's going to be before and after this guy's show. So he's always going to be seeing our logo, the station logo, hearing about the Buckhead show. And so that's how I got the station to, uh, to kind of back me. And I, I contacted Frank Culbertson and said, Hey, do you guys want to do a cross promotion? I come over there and, and act as an announcer, and we give you guys plugs on the morning show and talk about the show. And that's how I initially got my foot in the door and started talking to Frank and uh, and first got uh, on TV for Portland. Now, once you started doing this, like I said, you guys were doing, um, you were in the ring, you were doing the hype. You know, I believe you had purple hair or some purple hair at the time. Um, yes. But like yeah. you said, you were kind of a hype guy, and it was more the Buckhead show. When did you decide to start actually training and who were you training with at that time? Because during the Culbertson run, like I mentioned to Glenn before we started recording, uh, you had Grappler there. Roddy Piper came in on made some appearances. Snooka was on a show or two for him. You had a lot of the bigger names that were still kind of going around through at that time. But you know, when you started training, who were you training with? And just who are some of the guys that you started with? Well, I actually started training before I ever uh, was seen on, uh, on TV. Um, when I made, out the, made this deal with them, Grappler was the booker at the time for, uh, for Culberson, and their immediate thought was, hey, we're going to bring you in as an announcer, but we want Grappler's group to basically beat you up, and then we're going to kind of do a storyline out of it. So I started training before I was ever seen on TV. Uh, for about two months, Grappler pretty much just beat the living crap out of me. Uh, twice a week, I would show up in a ring, and it was me. Uh, it was my stunt boy at the time, a guy named Gallagher. And then I think it was Exile and Caden Matthews, a couple of the younger guys from the Portland Wrestling locker room. Um, but all that Grappler would have us do was just rolls, bumps, running the ropes, and just taking moves. Never taught how to lock up or anything like that. All we were taught was how to protect ourselves in the ring. And that went on for about two months before I actually made my debut on, uh, on the actual TV show. So I was training about two months before I, I got on TV. Now, during the time, you know, like I said, you first go in the ring, you're doing hype. 
But then you started getting a little, you know, physical activity involved in there. I believe there was a few guys who kind of beat you up in the ring. This is during yeah. the time you continue your training. You still haven't wrestled yet, though. In fact, if I remember oh, no. right, you didn't actually wrestle for a while. You started off as a manager. Um, yeah, I actually, I was an announcer for about, I want to say about six, seven months, um, and maybe up to about a year. And then uh, Dr. Luther had taken over the uh, the book and was booking the show. And at that time, the radio station um, really wasn't uh, getting what they wanted out of uh, being a sponsor for Portland Wrestling. And, uh, and so they wanted to back off. Um, I think Culbertson was trying to get another radio station in. So I think he had plans to actually get rid of me. And it was Dr. Luther who saved me and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. The kid's way more over than, uh, than half our roster, and I'm going to switch him over to be a manager. And so it was uh, Dr. Luther who actually gave me my chance uh, to become a, a manager at first. And at that point, I still hadn't wrestled uh, an actual match or even been taught how to lock up. And once uh, Doc had taken over the book, I was thrown in the matches pretty quickly right after that with him and his army of darkness. So I learned how to wrestle in the ring pretty much on the fly out in the ring. Now, during this time, are you still training with the grappler and all that, or is all your training now just basically kind of like in-ring experience? All my training was uh, basically at the uh, the TV tapings. Um, if there was something, well, I can't even say if there was something I had done that we'd go over it, because my very first choke slam was from Paul Isadora, and it was on, on TV. I had never taken a choke slam ever. Uh, the very t- first time I got hit in the head with a chair, I had never been told anything about that. I turned around to see Dr. Luther swinging a chair at my head. Um, first power bomb I ever took uh, in going through a table. Also, had never taken a power bomb, had never gone through a table. All of that was pretty much on the fly, what Luther had came up with. And uh, we would go out there, and he'd just look at me and go, just listen to me, kid. And I, I somehow managed to survive, and I got really good at just listening to the vets and doing whatever they they said and somehow surviving. So, Now, it's kind of funny. You, know, you mentioned your, your first joke song was from Paul Isadora. Our listeners may not know the name very well, but, Glenn, I'll just kind of inform people. Paul Isadora was, you know, a fairly tall gentleman. I believe he was about almost seven feet tall, and this is the man you took your first joke slam from. I took yeah. sort of one from him. He picked me up. I did not let him slam me. And that was a, you know, kind of a fear all of its own. Yeah, I, I learned uh, that day during the TV taping that when taking, uh, especially a high bump, to always exhale all your wind because if you breathe in, it knocks the wind out of you. So my first jump slam literally knocked the wind out of me. I couldn't move. And then I think it was Luther's like, let's do it again, and told Isidore to pick me up. And Paul grabs me by the throat, and I just kind of look at him. I'm like, can't breathe. And so he kind of lets go, and Luther goes, I said do it again. Paul just grabs me, snatches me again, goes, sorry, kid, and shoots me straight up and right back down, and I literally bounced on the second one. And when I bounced, it knocked all the air back into me. And uh, then I pretty much just laid there dead for a while. (laughs) I see the fun part about all this for me is, like I said, I met you when you first started. I was sitting front row to watch all this, so I was there for that first joke slam, and like you said, you did bounce, you didn't move, but you know what? It made for great television, and you looked great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I loved wrestling my entire life. I had uh, a chance when I was probably about 22 years old. I had met Scott Demore, 
um, at it was actually at one of those Michigan indie shows, and the uh, we had talked. And he's like, "You're in radio." He's like, "Come training." He goes, "I can get you a body. I can teach you how to wrestle." He goes, "You already got personality. You can talk." He goes, "That's something I really can't uh, train someone for." And but my living girlfriend at the time pretty much hated wrestling, and uh, oh, as we disputed it, I I thought it was in my best interest to be have a uh, happy home and not trained to wrestle. So when I got the chance, when I came out to Portland, I, I, I went for it. And so, uh, you know, once I got my foot in the door, anything they wanted me to do, that's what I was willing to do. Um, and then as Portland wrestling was, uh, was wrapping up is when I, uh, actually started training with playboy buddy Rose after that. Now you see you're training with playboy buddy Rose, uh, was Ed Wyskowski also training at that time or had they, had he, had he moved no. on by then? Yeah, Ed had already moved down to uh, to Arizona at that point, so it was just uh, it was just Buddy, and he was running uh, Skag Rollins. Uh, he now goes by uh, Todd Royce up here. He was running a company called NRW for about a year, and uh, Buddy was running a school uh, before all the uh, NRW shows each week. Now, see, this is where it's going to begin fun because you start off, you know, you're working with a grappler for a few months, and it's just basically, you know, like you said, rolls and bumps and have to check yourself. Yep. Now you're going on and you're training with Buddy Rose, who obviously any of our listeners know is a true legend. Legend described as Buddy Rose, not just in Oregon, but, you know, the AWA, the WWF, everywhere. What was it like getting a chance to work with uh, Buddy Rose? Um, so here's, uh, here's my initial Buddy story. Uh, before I ever got to train with him, when I was actually at the radio station, um, I got a call one afternoon. It was probably about 1230 in the afternoon. And, I pick up my office line and, hey, uh, is this Derek? Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, this is Playboy Buddy Rose. And in my head, I'm thinking, all right, it's one of my friends messing with me. Um, and uh, and I'm like, yeah, okay. He's like, yeah. I, I, so I live uh, here at the area and I'm doing on a wrestling show. And then I realized it really is Playboy Buddy Rose. And I, I was a little starstruck at first because I had been a huge fan and had seen a lot of AWA growing up and loved him and Doug Summers versus the Rockers and stuff. And so my first uh, first initial connection with uh, Buddy was uh, him calling the radio station and seeing if he could get some uh, free publicity for a uh, a show. Him and uh, Colonel Labeers were uh, were going to be putting on for their students at that point. Um, and so after that, me and Buddy kind of kept in contact through mutual friends that I had met, uh, like Jason Sullivan and stuff like that. And it wasn't until NRW when I started actually training with him. And Buddy was uh, very big on making sure that he got paid for uh, for training. And I'm happy to say that I am the only student that never had to pay Buddy for training. Um, we had uh, ran an angle where he came out to be a special enforcer referee and, and ended up, uh, I think, uh, pulling me off the apron and and I took a huge bump for him. And uh, that night, Buddy goes, I want you to train with me. He goes, you don't have to pay for anything. He goes, don't let anyone else know. But I like you, and I see something, and I want to get the most out of you. And, uh, and so that's when I started training with Buddy after that. All right, well, Glenn, I have opened the door for you in your, your Minnesota area. So I'm going to allow you to come in, tag you in, ask you a few questions. I'm sure you might want to talk a little bit more with uh, – our guests and maybe hear a little bit more about your Rose story. Yeah, I'd love to uh, just uh, throw in a couple of questions here. I don't want to uh, derail it, uh, derail the conversation too long. But when you bring up Buddy Buddy Rose, the Playboy man, of course, uh, 
he uh, came through the area. He was just a, a young, young man cutting his teeth in the AWA as, you know, by his name of Paul Pershman. He moved on. Uh, you know, he was basically, uh, like you said, a star in the uh, the Portland territories. He went all over the territories and, and what a character that he was. And uh, what were some of your, your memories of, uh, you talked about meeting with Buddy and now we're up to the point where you, you were, he's been off, he's offered to train you. Uh, what was the memories of, of getting in and, and actually training and, and, and sitting under the learning tree with, with Buddy uh, as far as, uh, as a trainer goes? Um, it, Buddy was all about the small things. Um, he really, and, and making the most out of everything, out of all your movements. I mean, if you remember him as a worker, you, there were very few people that was his size that worked as smooth as him. And at this point, Buddy, he, he was pretty hefty, and, uh, and his back was pretty bad. So most of the time, it was him on the outside of the ring, uh, sitting at a table. But I, I have one memory of, I forget who was in the ring, but someone had screwed up something. And Buddy just, no, that's not, and literally gets up, gets in the ring, and proceeds to run this drill like that man had been bumping every day up until that point when he probably hadn't taken a bump in at least two, three years at this point, and just ran this whole drill. It was just the most graceful, amazing sight to see. And then he gets down and goes, ah, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, or, ah. And uh, he complained about it, but just watching him, he was just so graceful at that point, so good. Uh, and I also remember... Uh, <laughs> being told less is more and never really understanding it until now. But uh, Buddy taught me less is more, and it wasn't until later when I, I really started implementing it with my, uh, with, with my gimmick and, uh, and with my matches and stuff. But he was just he was more about the smaller things and just great at teaching you all around on the business and probably one of my favorite people to talk behind-the-scenes stories with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the guy was a treasure trove of knowledge. And one of the things that gets mentioned uh, you know, through the years about Buddy, not only about his in-ring stuff, was uh, the the way that Buddy would be in regards to tapes. Of course, wrestling tape collections and collectors through the years that were basically the life's blood of, uh, for pro wrestling fans who were living outside of territories and nostalgia seekers. Uh, I mean, you could get anything. In, you know, in, in those old pre-YouTube days, that was the, the deal. I mean, tape collecting was just a, a trend. Uh, uh, what I can remember hearing about Buddy and, and still hear about it to this day on, on various podcasts uh, was was Buddy's uh, amazing library of films. Did you ever get a chance to uh, get a little look at what Buddy had uh, to offer as far as some of the, the tapes that he had uh, had in his collection as far as recording uh, some of the Portland stuff and being able to kind of watch some of that Portland wrestling? Because there was some amazing, amazing stuff while Buddy was in the territory. He had a garage full of tapes and not just like VHS or beta, we're talking the, uh, the recording, uh, I forget what the name of the tape was, but there was a, 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 a VHS-style tape before VHS and beta, and his tapes go back to that point because he it was the only one that had the, uh, he's like, he wanted to be able to see his stuff, and so that's why he recorded it. No one else, uh, no one else gave a crap about, uh, about the footage. I mean, they were sitting, they were, uh, they were re-recording all the Portland tapes. Uh, they would reuse the same tapes for uh, for all the uh, the TV tapings and for running stuff. So none of that stuff was saved, and pretty much everything, all the footage you see online from Portland, I think most of that came from Buddy's collection. It was absolutely amazing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as you're developing your character, I, I mean, having a background in radio, uh, I mean, I mean, talk about something that's really a great thing and, and integral to really uh, helping your persona burst out as far as getting on the mic and developing your character. Now, we talk about the, the radio side of things, but from pro wrestling, what is you're developing some of the stuff? Who were some of the guys that, that really did inspire you uh, as far as uh, finding your way and your footing in pro wrestling and kind of creating and developing your, your persona through the years? And, and especially in those early days, who were some of those guys that, that you want had some aspirations of being influenced by? Um, early on when, I mean, when I initially got into business, my, my whole goal was I'd be a manager. I never thought I'd actually be a wrestler. I'm uh, 5'11", and at that point, probably about 150, 155 pounds. So I had, no, I had no thoughts that I'd ever actually be in the ring. I thought I would just be a manager. And growing up, uh, Bobby the Brain Union, of course, and Roddy Piper were two of my favorites. Uh, my very first T-shirt as a kid was a Roddy Piper shirt, as everyone else loved Hogan. I was the Piper fan and, and rooting for the bad guy even when I was about eight uh, nine years old. So, uh, but they were probably my, my early influences. And then I was always a huge fan of dynamite kid and his, uh, even though I, I mean, besides the snugness, I don't really, uh, uh, much, uh, dynamite kid, but I always loved watching him as a, as a, uh, a worker coming up. And then when he disappeared, I remember always reading the magazines and seeing what was going on and, and had no idea about how bad his back was or any of that stuff. All the knowledge that's out there now, Growing up, I was a huge Junkyard Dog fan. Uh, I watch his matches now and I laugh, but his promos, he could talk anyone into a building. So uh, my wrestling knowledge is is pretty deep, and as I was coming up with uh, with my character and as I, I kind of morphed throughout the years, it, it comes from all over the place. Uh, Dr. Luther is a huge influence on uh on what Drexel is now because Luther had retired. I watched a bunch of his old FMW stuff when I was down in, uh, down in Florida. And that's how I kind of, uh, developed the, what is now the human horror show devil himself character of Drexel. A lot of that came from Dr. Luther. Um, I was teaming with Kevin Sullivan and the army of darkness down in Florida at one point. So Kevin Sullivan has a little, uh, a little bit, uh, influence in there and, it can go as deep as uh, Chris Colt and the way that he moved around the ring because I was never a really great athlete and I always knew I was awkward. So I would watch my tapes back and then watch different stuff. Chris Colt had this weird kind of awkwardness to the way that he moved around the ring and I would try to uh, uh, like try to incorporate that a little bit. So it comes from all over. I, uh, I steal from everyone and everything as Drexel. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of some of your photos uh, from, from from your career here, and I noticed some of the face paint, a la Alice Cooper, a la Chris Colt, uh, with some of his old photos when he was doing his uh, yep. "Welcome to My Nightmare" type of gimmick. So I can definitely tell that whiff of the past. And did you ever uh, get much uh, involvement or ever see uh, him around? Uh, you know, another guy from the Portland area that uh, made his mint in the '80s. Did you ever have any association with Billy Jack Haynes? Um, I've met Billy one time, uh, and it was uh, a kind of just weird, awkward situation. But uh, now Billy kind of had already uh, blackballed himself from the uh, from the area with his uh, craziness by the time I had gotten up here to Portland. Okay, so uh, I, I want to uh, bring Mike back into the conversation to, to also talk about your your rundown in Florida because you uh, just brought up Kevin Sullivan and, and Mike. 
Kevin Sullivan, now that's just a whole uh, a bunch of questions ready to be asked right now. Oh, well, definitely, man. You know, I've had a chance to talk with Kevin Sullivan on a couple of occasions at a, a CAC, and you know, obviously, you know, Derek's name has come up a few times. But before we get to Florida, though, Derek, I'd like to talk a little bit. You said you were with NRW, which was, you know, Skag was running at the time. Now Todd Royce, uh, another friend of yeah. mine. But then you got involved. You, Jason Sullivan, and a couple other gentlemen got together, and you formed DOA Pro Wrestling, which I believe your 10th anniversary was just celebrated. Yeah, was it yeah, the 10th? Sure, uh, 11 years now. Uh, 11 years in September. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the beginnings of, you know, DOA and how that got started and its longevity, because that's kind of where you started, you know, getting a little bit more into, you know, the problem with you were more wrestling and also the kind of the formation of the devil himself started to begin in uh, DOA. At the time in Portland, um, the entire Pacific Northwest was kind of a wasteland of, uh, of what was going on with wrestling. There were shows here and there, but uh, nothing really great. Uh, definitely was a black hole of uh, there were some really talented people around here, but none of it was ever getting seen. And it became a trend that a lot of the promoters were starting to be, well, if you work for me, you can't work for anyone else. When you're working in the Pacific Northwest and you're running once a month, you can't tell me where to work. I mean, you could work all the shows at that point and maybe get six shows for the month. So it's not like there was that much wrestling, but a lot of these promoters just had this attitude of, well, if you're working for me, you can't work for anyone else. And, uh, and so that's why DOA was started. Uh, it actually stands for Don't Own Anyone. And it was me, Jason Sullivan, uh, and then a man named Terry Farnes and, uh, and Kevin Brandt, who are uh, behind-the-scenes type guys, um, and we started the company kind of ran by the boys for the boys to give guys in the Portland area a place to actually perform their craft and not be micromanaged by a promoter who wanted to be put into the storylines or, or a guy who kind of had his own vision of things that didn't really gel with what guys wanted to do with their characters. DOA gave them that freedom of, hey, you, know, you want to work a feud with this guy? And you want to do okay, yeah, let's, let's figure it out. We'll map it out. We'll make it happen. So it was always a company based around um, giving the guys a spotlight to do what they love to do and actually performing this as, a, as an art and not as a, a micromanaged, okay, this is what you have to do and this is you know, all I want. And if you don't do that, then you can't work for me. And it was in DOA, um, we, I've, you've told the story before, I believe it was a fan in the front row, like an older lady that just kind of got mad at you because, you know, you're, you're the heel at the time. You were working, I believe that was with the Illuminati, and some lady got mad uh, actually, at you. It was, and pre, it was pre-DOA. It was NWWA. Pre-DOA. Um, yeah, it was pre uh, the Illuminati, uh, initially our group. Um, so when the, the concept of the Illuminati was was put together. It was supposed to be a bunch of elitists. Uh, I was going to manage the group. Uh, uh, Dave Havoc Hollenbeck would be like the main super wrestler type main uh, singles guy. Uh, Matt Farmer was supposed to be uh, initially in the group. He was going to be the, the old vet, uh, the wily vet to the group. And then we were going to have the tag team, which was going to be Wade Reichton and Wade Hess um, with them playing like basically kind of like Nazi war dogs. Um, they were doing a Nazi gimmick. But somehow, from the tag team being a Nazi group, uh, the entire Illuminati suddenly became a, uh, uh, a Nazi group uh, with the angle. 
And I remember this older black woman screaming that you the damn devil himself and screaming that at me during a promo. And I repeat, I said, you know what, man? Yes, I am the damn devil himself. And that's how I ended up getting that moniker. Now, also through DOA, we'll go into this. Um, you talked about it allowed you to work with different guys. You know, hey, I want to do this feud. I want to work with this guy. Because, you know, as you said, don't own anyone. It gave you a chance to work with people. One of the guys you had a chance to work with, and this is someone I'd love to have on the show sometime as well in our indie spotlight. And it kind of became a running part. You know, you had Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair Sting. You had all the guys who were paired together that knew each other, that could do the dance every night. And that's you and Quiz, HBQ, yeah. whatever he was going by at that time. You and Quiz were like a Flair and Steamboat, in my opinion, of the Pacific Northwest. We even brought you to California for my first debut show to do a match that you had done before, and it was flawless. But let's talk a little bit about kind of, you know, working with that, because in my opinion, man, that was just a great run that you had with him and probably still do. Me and, uh, and Quiz HBQ, uh, so we, he was also trained by Buddy at, uh, and trained by Colonel De Beers, and we didn't really meet until I believe it was NRW. Um, he had started working for NRW, and I was working there, and that's where we first met. And we both had a love for comic books and pop culture, and, and so we kind of hit it off behind the scenes, but never really did anything in the ring. Um, Quiz was one of those hidden gem talents in the Pacific Northwest that was just so good, but no one realized how good he was, especially in the ring. Um, and it wasn't until, I think, uh, we, I think we had faced a few times at NWWA, but it was at DOA that uh, I was making the switch from being a manager to uh, a full-time wrestler. Um, Quiz was starting to get a little bit of a push, but he wasn't connecting with the fans. And it was actually Jason Sullivan, who was booking DOA at the time, that said, hey, what if I put you guys together as a tag team? He goes, you've got the emotional connection and the... Uh, and can do the talking quiz is amazing in the ring. And that'll just help you with uh, getting more, more fluent in the ring and, and getting better out there. So that's how we ended up uh, teaming up, but we had known each other for at that point, a few years. And uh, I don't know, we were married for a long, long time. It got to the point that he is one of the few guys that I can honestly say I could go out there and never talk before the match, never talk in the ring. And we could just go out there and wrestle because we know each other so well and uh, and know each other's body movements of what's going to happen next. I agree with you about the fact that you know, he's one of those talents that a lot of people don't realize about. We brought him out to Texas a few years back. He did two nights with uh, Nate Andrews at a sh shows we were doing. And just within a few minutes, he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. They loved him. People were asking about having him come back. I mean, he's just that talented. But working with Quiz and working with DOA, and now we're going to roll. We're going we're gonna to switch it up a little bit. We're probably going to start talking to Drexel a little bit. This is when some of the hardcore stuff starts happening, and there's barbed wire and boards, and, you know, your character tends to get a little bit darker. You go to Florida, and it gets even darker. So let's kind of talk about how the evolution of the devil and Drexel and into the human horror show. We're going to switch it up a little bit for the listeners. Well, like I said, I grew up in Detroit. So I, I remember the Sheik from early on and seeing footage of the Sheik and, uh, and, uh, and his movie, I like to hurt people and, and things like that. And so I've always been a fan of the, uh, the darker side. And then when ECW started, I loved ECW. I loved the hardcore style. 
so when DOA formed, no one else was really doing hardcore. So it kind of at, at a point was really a hardcore company. And I really just wanted to try all the things that I had seen so many times before and, and kind of, uh, and do my own version of it. And so that's where the hardcore stuff came from. I mean, I was always a fan of it and a huge ECW fan, but, uh, the, uh, the devil character, I mean, we got the name, but the actual like crazed, uh, maniacal, uh, maniac didn't happen until probably about a year and a half, two years into my four year stint down in Florida. And uh, when I got teamed up with uh, Abuda Dean as part of the Army of Darkness with Kevin Sullivan down there. So let's fast forward a little because I'm, I'm having fun with this, and I want our listeners to get a little taste of this, and, and Glenn as well. Uh, we're going to fast forward to Florida a little bit. You're teaming with uh, Abuda Dean as part of the Army of Darkness with Kevin Sullivan, and now it's getting a little darker. So let's talk to you know Drexel for a few minutes and kind of let's continue the career from there and – Tell us a little bit about Florida and being part of the Army of Darkness under the tutelage of Kevin Sullivan. Well, you know, Florida people are really kind of stupid. <laughs> There's a lot of backwards people down there. And I've never seen so many people that are just kind of afraid of the dark arts. I mean, a Buddhist would walk out there with his, I would walk out there with my the golden spikes that I had. I had taken down from Kevin Sullivan, from, from my father, Kevin Sullivan, the original devil. And I remember chasing fans through gymnasiums down there and having them just running and traveling each other trying to get away. It was a, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting place. And that's where Drexel was officially born and got the nice X in the middle of my forehead. <laughs> All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the mic back over to you for a few minutes here. Maybe you'd like to talk with Drexel about, uh, his time in Florida and with Kevin Sullivan. Oh, man. Yeah, come on. Take it over. Talk. <laughs> what do you want to know? Maybe I'll tell you. Maybe I won't. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, you know, the, the learning tree of Kevin Sullivan, how lucky and how fortunate it was for the evolution of your character. Because when it comes to guys, not only with diabolical, but with intelligent minds, that had to have been the ultimate tree to sit under to reap the knowledge of a man who I think a lot of people, for the most part, misunderstand the man from Beantown. I think Kevin Sullivan it was probably one of the ultimate per- perfect influences to take your Drexel and, and take him to new and, and uncharted places. I think you like to do a lot of fancy talking. Kevin Sullivan is nuts. Kevin Sullivan is legit. Like He's kind of like Charles Manson. I've never met a man that could get in your head and get you to do whatever he wants, but he's really, really good at that. At one point, wanted me to carry a weasel to the ring that's how crazy this man <laughs> so you would say uh, you know for guys when it talk about going to florida it was probably a different path taken than uh, one you could have taken with steve kern or or a brian blair or somebody down there well when i first got to florida i i originally went down to fcw and i did get to train with a little steve kern and i got to train with Norman Smiley, and they taught me some really, really fancy things on how to work around the body. But you know what it got me? It got me nothing. It didn't get me bookings. It didn't get me on shows. I wasn't one of the sport boys. I wasn't with their friends, so I wasn't going to work on their shows in the middle of parking lots and asphalt in 95 degrees. And, you know, that's okay. So what did it take? 
It took me going out there and taking a railroad spike and stabbing people in the head to get noticed. So that's how Kevin Sullivan influenced me down in Florida. <laughs> There's such a wide array of talent uh, going on in the independent world of professional wrestling. There has to be some people that you have uh, created, you know, a, a list of sorts of people that you would love and die to get into the ring with to show them just the, the kind of professional that you are. Is there some people that come out in particular that you that you would love to, to, to have a chance to get into the ring and, and just give them your own sort of education? Uh, currently, I would say dream matches for guys in India right now. Jimmy Havoc. Jimmy Havoc is a man that appreciates paper cuts as much as me. See, I think I like a sample gun maybe a little bit more than Jimmy, but we would have to find out and see between who would have more staples in their head and more staples in their groin, or who would have more paper cuts across their tongue. Uh, uh, Ricky Shane Page, another, he's a big boy. <laughs> he's another guy that I would love to get in the ring with. And pretty much any of these guys, uh, Nick Gage, that man is not, and I'm pretty sure it would end up like a new Jack match where one of us is going to stab the other. But there is a lot of guys out there right now that call themselves King of the Death Match. And I would like to show that uh, the Pacific Northwest as a king of Northwest hardcore, and his name is the devil himself, Drexel. <laughs> well, Drexel, there's another state that has a, a claim to hardcore. Uh, we're talking about o the Ohio and the man uh, with his crew, uh, Mr. Sammy Callahan. Uh, I haven't heard him being mentioned. Would he be somebody that you would like to include in your, your, your ultimate uh, list of guys that you want to show just who the king of the death matches to? <laughs> Sammy is a very interesting guy. Sammy, you don't know what you're going to get. You might get Sammy that wants to show up and steal the show, or you might get Sammy that wants to come out and make a political stance on something. So, I mean, granted, if anyone wants to book it, I would love to make it happen with Sammy or anyone in OVE. I mean, I grew up in Detroit. I don't like Ohio. <laughs> so there's a natural feud right there. Because I remember growing up in Detroit going, well, it's really, really rough here, but at least we're not Ohio because they really suck. Now, you talk about the Sheik in Detroit and what a strong influence the Sheik is, his legacy of hardcore brutality. Uh, I, I want to ask you, uh, does the name Sabu strike any sort of interest? I know he's, uh, he's had a lot of years in the pro wrestling business, but uh, he is the Sheik's nephew. He is a legacy. Have you, uh, walked, have you wanted to walk that wire with Sabu uh, to also uh, to ascend yourself further up into the world of hardcore? Uh, I've met Sabu on, on several occasions, and he's a very, very nice man. And I feel that, you know, we could go out there and we could hurt each other, but I kind of feel like me and Sabu, we have a, a kindred spirit, and we'd like to go out there and hurt ourselves against other people. <laughs> so, yeah, Sabu was also a big influence. In fact, I had someone else, uh, New Jack, say, would you be willing to wrestle New Jack? And I said, yes. And they said, really, you're not scared to wrestle Blue Jack? And I said, I grew up in Detroit. I was a loudmouth, long-haired, white kid who grew up in Detroit. New Jack doesn't scare me. In fact, anyone in the wrestling ring doesn't scare me because I grew up with really, really rough things, and I got beat up a lot growing up. So whatever the wrestling ring has to, to dish out, I really ain't scared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give the mic back to uh, the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy, because I know he's got to have a few questions, a few things, uh, you know, in his craw, sticking in that craw he needs to ask you, Drexel, uh, before we, we, we part today. But Grizz, come on in here, man. He's ready yeah. for you. 
<laughs> I, I, I've had many encounters with Drexel, so um, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to South America for a little bit right now. Ran through the curtain at that show and wanted to fight me because I scared his child. That was a good one. You, you made his son puke. <laughs> <laughs> well, good kid learned he shouldn't smile at me. <laughs> So after Florida, you know, you go down to Paraguay, South America, and you, along with Jason Sullivan, and if you wasn't, you start a new group down in Paraguay. Tell us a little bit about your experience or Derek's experience in Paraguay with the with that group that you were running at that time. Well, uh, Drexel came down to perform. Derek was a fish out of water. <laughs> I, uh, when I moved back from Florida, back to the Pacific Northwest, I was 38, 39 years old. And I figured that, all right, my, my career is on the downslope. I, I did my try. I, I tried to get the WWE at that point. They weren't hiring managers. I was way too small for what they were looking for. Um, I had fun down in the Indies. I got to work a bunch of cool people. I get work guys like the headbangers work with Kevin Sullivan, but I essentially moved back to the Pacific Northwest to kind of like just write out the end of my career and just, and have fun with friends. Um, and then when I got back here, I, uh, I started, uh, immediately working for ECCW up in Canada. And it was one of my, my first or my second show. It was Scotty Mack approached me and goes, Hey, would you want to go down to Paraguay for about six months at train wrestlers and do a TV show? And I looked at him, I was like, if you can cover my bills in Portland, yeah, I, I will be there. And that's how the uh, the deal initially worked out. It was called Machado. Uh, it was based out of uh, Asuncion. And it was probably one of the greatest six months of my life being down there and uh, and training guys that had never done pro wrestling. Uh, they hadn't had real pro wrestling down there for over 20 years. So it was something brand new to the culture. Uh, and when we cut down there, we had three weeks to train wrestlers to get them ready for TV. So it was a, a mind-boggling experience. Now, see, you're going from this, you know, in your career, you know, you were trained by Buddy Rose, Grappler, I mean, uh, Dr. Luther's another guy you worked with. Now, you're getting the chance to start training wrestlers, but you got three weeks to do this in. Just what was kind of going through your mind at that time, and what were you at least hoping for to get ready for Luchando and their debut? Because like you said, three weeks. That's all you had, and these guys had never wrestled before. We we had three weeks, and the first week, there was no ring. We got the, the ring at the end of the first week. We did a casting call, basically, um, and got a bunch of guys in there and just ran drills to see who was physically in shape enough to be able to wrestle. And the ones that had some kind of athletic background, we had them cut promos to see what we had to work with. And then from that point on, we, we figured out who the top of the, uh, the casting calls guys would be. And, uh, and I think within a week, we figured out what the matches were, and we started trying to come up with matches um, and how to highlight guys that had no experience whatsoever. Um, it was... And, uh, and then throwing the, the fact that none of us really spoke uh, fluent Spanish at all, and most of them did not speak uh, fluent English. So I think we had one or two translators, and, uh, and then there was uh, five trainers total. It was uh, myself, Kevin, or, uh, myself, Jason Sullivan, uh, Scotty Mack, uh, Casey Spinelli, and then one of mine and 
uh, Jason Sullivan's students, uh, Kate Carney. And uh, we were the uh, the ones that were brought in to teach them how to wrestle. So uh, I, I really can't even explain how crazy it was. We were uh, training uh, five and six days a week, and we were usually down in the ring and at the gym area for a minimum of uh, five to eight hours a day. Uh, try to teach these guys the basics and and come up with everything and and translate it yeah it was uh it was crazy i mean it was absolutely amazing and yeah i can't speak highly enough of it now along with you know being part of the wrestling and your training and you got this show coming up you're also basically getting a six months to stay in you know in paraguay south america something that i'm sure you know when you were first training first working on it this is not something you were expecting to be able to do. Just what was it like actually getting to live down there for a while and experiencing the culture? Because I remember tons of pictures of just the area you were at and, and the places you were dining at and just a lot of the sites. And it looked absolutely amazing just on the pictures. It was like being a, uh, a Martian on Earth. Uh, us being down there, we looked nothing like anyone else, especially myself. Uh, they looked strange at Ed Sullivan being a, uh, a 400 pound, six foot four, uh, bleach blonde kind of uh, monster. You got Scotty Mack, who's just chiseled, that looks straight off of a uh, California beach with his uh, his white, uh, silvery, frosty, spiked uh, uh, haircut. And then there's me with my mohawk, um, sleeved out tattoos, um, my beard down to the middle of my chest. And very few people looked like me down there. So everywhere I went, it was nonstop stares. I remember old uh, old people, old ladies would actually go to the other side of the street and start doing the sign of the cross when they saw me. And I didn't know if it was because they had seen the show and seen my character or just because of the way I looked. That's kind of legit. And honestly, man, you know, there are a lot of places just here in the States that you know, people are going to look at you kind of odd because you, you kind of tend to stand out in the crowd a little bit. Like I said, you know, you did make a small child puke at a uh, at a wrestling show, and this is one of the things you take pride in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, I uh, I live like a king down there. They put us up in this amazing bed and breakfast uh, where we were all living together. We uh, was two per room, so me and Scotty Mac were uh, roommates and literally slept about three feet away from each other. We could reach out and hold hands if we wanted to between our beds. That's how close we were at that point. But they they gave us our essentials. We had our spot where the ring was set up uh, constantly to train in. Uh, They hooked us up with a gym membership, and then they were paying me enough that I could uh, send back uh, money back to my bonus. Uh, in Portland and cover all my uh, my end of the bills and everything back here. So it was uh, a great experience. I can officially say that for six months of my life, I was a, uh, a, a Lucha Libre star in South America. Now, has, you know, Luchando, has it continued in any form since then? Or was, you know, the time you were there, was that the only time that it was actually on? Um, and that's the only time it was on TV was, uh, was our run. It has continued to do smaller house shows and Sancion, but they, uh, they, unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the, the economics of Paraguay isn't the best. And, uh, um, financially, I don't think they could afford to keep bringing down, uh, North Americans to help train and stuff. So, uh, the guys that we trained have now kind of taken on, uh, on the next generation. They've been helping to train them. And 
I know uh, Sullivan had went down uh, after our initial six months. Sullivan had went down for a few weeks, and so did uh, I think Casey Spinelli went down for about a month and helped them out also with their uh, their school and stuff. But they're still doing shows. It seems about once every month or two they'll uh, they'll do a show and seem to be drawing all right. So I'm, I'm glad they're still getting to live out the dream, even if it's not on TV anymore. Now, as you said, you know you've been in this business now, you know, 14, 15 years. You know, the hardcore style is obviously going to wear on the back. Is that time coming where you kind of see your time in the ring coming to an end? And if so, is there anything else you'd like to do before that? And what are kind of your plans after, you know, your in-ring career? Um, you know, I've been saying since I came back from uh, Florida that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up at 40. And uh, I just celebrated my, uh, my 44th birthday in, in May. And, you know, the Pacific Northwest is now thriving, so it's really hard to, uh, to step down, especially because I'm working companies like Defy, which are getting a huge national presence on the indies and becoming one of the super indie companies. And I get to work at, you know, at least 50, 75% of their shows I'm on. Uh, Prestige is another one that has really been highlighting my character and, and giving me a lot of fun matches. I just wrestled Sue Young and Funny Bone and Tyler Bateman. And uh, I have a huge uh, uh, death match coming up uh, with one of the top guys in the, uh, in the country, uh, coming up in September for prestige that, uh, they'll be making the announcement soon. And then, uh, as far as when I, I keep saying around 45, but it all depends on how my, how my body holds up and, and what the opportunities are. But, uh, we'll see how long I can keep going. And, uh, uh you know, if, if, if it's to the point where I can't perform anymore, then I'm definitely going to step down and, I think uh, once I'm not active in the ring, I'm pretty sure I'll just take over behind the scenes, possibly manage again. And uh, I uh, I booked DOA for for close to three years, and I've got a a pretty good knack at uh, at being creative behind the scenes and helping guys with characters and stuff. So there's I've talked to some people about possibly uh, another wrestling school coming up in the Pacific Northwest and being one of the trainers there. So I'm planning on uh, just stepping behind the curtain or possibly just managing and doing stuff behind the curtain once I, I do retire. But um, stuff I'd still want to do, I've got a small uh, small group of companies that I still would love to go work. I'd love to go uh, do uh, a PCW Ultra show down in Cali and bar wrestling down there. Um, I work Hood Slam on a, uh, a somewhat regular uh, basis. I can go down there and I enjoy doing those shows. And, I'd also like to get over to England and uh, go spend a couple weeks with the Knight family at WA uh, at WAW because um, I've become friends with the Knight family over the years and have an open invitation to go stay with them and I'd just love to go over there and and work around with their family because they're so unbelievably amazing. Uh, Saraya Knight and uh, and then Paige uh, are both such sweethearts and I'd love to actually go hang with uh, with Paige's brothers sometimes. So uh, and you know a chance did come to get over to Japan. I'd love the chance to go do that. Uh, me and Dr. Luther have talked a little about, about that. And I think, uh, if I, I needed a connection to get over there, it's, uh, pretty much all about money. And, uh, if I could make enough on a, a tour, then I'd love to get over to Japan before I stepped out. Also. Well, man, I gotta say, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end of the show. And I've enjoyed talking with you, man. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you're one of the, you've got a great mind for the business. I always come to you if I got any ideas or questions, you know, about creative stuff. And I've always enjoyed talking to you. It was a pleasure to have you on 
uh, the show. We're definitely going to have to have you on again because, you know, you're mentioning Dr. Luther and some of those guys. And, you know, Dr. Luther, obviously, major name over in Japan, worked with Chris Jericho. So a lot of our listeners are going to know about Dr. Luther. But before I hand the mic back over to Glenn and we wrap up this week's edition of Rational Memories, you've been a great guest. I'd like to know kind of what, uh, you know, what, what, what Drexel thought about being a guest on this week's edition of Rational Memories. Uh, you know, I should be sleeping right now because the sun is out and it kind of burns my skin. Besides waking me up, really, you guys seem very professional. But what I, I, I do have a problem. There's not enough blood on this podcast, on this, on this show. There needs to be more blood, more gruesomeness. And, I, I mean, could you do me a favor right now? If you could, I'm sure you've got your little pieces of paper sitting right there, uh, and, and you got your little notes on it. So just take one of those pieces of paper, put it right between my, your fingers, and just, just give it a quick little slide. Just give yourself a little tiny paper cut. Then Drexel will be a happy camper to I do that, you know, <laughs> someone get during the match. <laughs> All right, Glenn, well, I passed the mic to RVD to wrap this up, so I'll let you take care of that. Well, damn, I just cut, hey, my, hey, I, I just cut myself, hey, man. Where's that paper cut? Oh, you did? All right, good. I like you. Uh, I, you're a piece of trash. You're you, you're kind of a, uh, I don't know what words I'd be allowed to say right now. You're a piece of trash, Mike, but, but I, I like you. <laughs> you're like me. You're not like the other <laughs> my my friend, uh, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a friend and associate of Kevin Sullivan. Uh, you're aces in my book. Well, that's it for Rasslin' Memories then and now. I'm Glenn Broggett, and uh, of course for the grizzled vet Mike McCurdy and our guest Derek Drexel. We're signing off. Have a great one.